one of the beautiful things about Star Wars for me, Jim, and for all musicians, I think, is that that people, in many cases young people who've never been to a concert, never heard an orchestra before, heard a symphony orchestra for the first time, and felt not put off by it, but attracted to it, so that you can imagine my gratification when people come decades later, younger people, and say, I, I got turned on to music because of, of movie scores. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. This is Cheap Seat Reviews. Yeah, I mean, those three defined my childhood. Last time I'm going to do this, I promise. Okay, I don't promise. But... <laughs> Just don't, just don't tell them that that's a, a strange variation of the Emperor's theme. Hello and welcome to Cheap Seat Reviews, the podcast that explores the Hollywood film industry for the greater good. This is normally where Sam would say something for the greater good, but he's not here. So I'm just going to re- repeat myself and just say the greater good. This is a bonus episode. We don't have very many of these, but that's right, we're doing a bonus episode. Tonight we're talking about the music of Star Wars, specifically just the original trilogy. I am Sean Allred, and joining me tonight is Eric Woods from the Cinematic Soundtrack Podcast. Good evening, how are you? I said that wrong. I said that wrong yeah, last cinematic time. Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I even took a second before hitting record <laughs> to make sure I wrote down the right thing. And It's all right. No I, problem. I think you spelled my name right, which is good. So. Yeah, Eric with a K. Yeah, That's that, right. That, that part we got right. <laughs> well, we're off to a good start. All right. So, <laughs> Eric, great th- start, huh? thanks for joining me again. This is... Uh, oh, it's my pleasure. I, I'm, we're talking Star Wars music. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. Heck yeah. Uh, I had to look back and see what we had you on before. So we had you back on about 11 weeks ago for Terminator 2. That's right. And yeah, uh, that, that was fun. Was, that was a fun episode, and I got a lot of good feedback from that episode. So Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's um, awesome. Well, I, I guess a lot is relative. For us, any feedback is, is, uh, is considered <laughs> a lot. But you're right. Any feedback is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least somebody's listening. That's true. Uh, and um, <laughs> there were several people that said, I'm so glad you talked about the, the, uh, the helicopter stunt. So great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That, yeah. That was, that's, that still blows me away to this day. Oh, man. No kidding. It's uh, incredible. Uh, tell my listeners, because uh, I know your listeners know all about you, but mine don't really know a lot about you, Eric. Um, uh, other than you have a cool podcast called Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. There we go. See, I'm going to get it right eventually. Uh, so tell tell my people, kind of like my people, my listeners, boy, it's you can tell that I'm not used to being off script. Um, just tell tell my listeners, like you know, uh, who you are, where you've been, and how you kind of love what you do and Star Wars in general. Just I want you to give it a nice big bow on it. It all kind of accumulates into like one singular moment, which is actually Return of the Jedi. It's the first movie I saw in the theaters, and I knew Star Wars music, but I had never heard it before, um, and I had never seen a Star Wars movie. I saw the Star Wars truly backwards, so I saw Jedi, then Empire, then Star Wars. But I can recall being in one of these 
massive theaters in Toronto. And I think it was a university theater, and I don't think it's open anymore. It's a two-story uh, theater, big balcony, red seats, huge red, um, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, open and close. Uh, Curtains? Like a... For the, in front of the screen. Um, yeah, just the big curtain mind. or the, the grand drape or... <laughs> what are they... Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there was a big red drape in front of it. They would open up this massive screen. Uh, funny thing is, they uh, sang the national anthem before the movie started, and it was only the... That was the only time that I, that ever happened uh, to me. But then Return of the Jedi turned on and just absolutely blown away by everything that was coming at me. And so, um, I, 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 I knew what film music was, um, but that was really the first time I, I got to, 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 to really feel it and hear it and experience it on the big screen. And I immediately went home and went to my sketchbook. I loved to draw it as a kid and I was drawing X-Wings and TIE Fighters and I'm just singing, uh, the Star Wars themes in my, in my head. So that's kind of where it began and but I, I mean I didn't know you could buy soundtrack music and so it was until I was like in high school and I had to do a, a project on John Williams and for my music class that I realized that you can actually get this music on on CD and actually own it and listen to it and it was just uh, it was an incredible experience and I kept on finding all of John Williams's Boston Pops albums and and realizing that John Williams basically, composed my childhood. So everything I was listening to, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jaws, Close Encounters, I mean, it was all coming alive at that moment. And, um, you know, in and around that time, that's when I started getting a, a sizable collection and uh, really falling in love with the with the genre. And then in my second year of college, I started a, a radio show based on soundtracks. And that's where it all began in 1996, September of 1996 at Mohawk College. And I did 10 years of, of soundtrack radio before I left and then uh, transitioned the show over to a, a streaming program and then eventually a podcast. And I've been doing it for, for 25 years. Wow, that's incredible. Um, as one does when they listen to someone else's story, they, they often think back to the things that like they, they can relate to, right? So as I'm hearing you talk about the first time you saw Jedi, which is in the theaters, which made me then realize that uh, you're older than I am. Um, um, I was, well, how old was I then? I was like seven? Came out in 83. I think I was seven? Yeah. yeah. And it, so I was, I was one. So obviously I didn't get to see it in the theater, but um, I don't remember how old I was when I watched it the first time. I don't. I don't have a moment where I sat down with dad and said, this son is the first time you will watch the Star Wars, which I did with my child. I actually did like, this is the Star Wars, you know, yep. but, um, but I do, again, I, I grew up watching them at six, seven, eight years old and I had them on tapes and, uh, and I mentioned in our, in the last, over the last few weeks talking about some of the reasons why I'd seen Star Wars so much was simply because it's what we had at the house. So, I listened to these soundtracks, but I listened to them with the t on, on the, with the movie. Um, and the first soundtrack I ever purchased with my own money was actually the soundtrack to Twister. Um, Excellent. And it had both score cues and the uh, the licensed music, the the soundtrack. You know, so it had uh, Van Halen's uh, "Human Being" song and Tori Amos and. 
handful of other artists that I don't remember. Um, but I remember being super stoked when in the movie they tie in the Van Halen song with the score. Yep, and I one of my all-time favorite moments. It's such a cool moment. It really is when it's like... Yeah, Trevor Rabin's ripping on the guitar. Yeah, it is it's, magical. Those helicopter shots, right? Over top of the water tower. Yeah. I get goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. It's so... Because they're, they're driving through so the... Good. They're driving through... Uh, it's right when they're, cause there's this comedic thing that's also happening in the moment. Like they're, they're on their way and they're, and then they turn down this, the, they're taking the shortcut. Right. And then all of a sudden they're just in a cornfield and he's like, where's the road, man? He goes, Oh, it's just up here. And then they almost crash and then the music stops. But anyway, it's a great moment in, in Twister. It is. Yeah. In an otherwise fine movie, it's a really great moment. Um, I had a great time with Twister. Yeah. Yeah. No, gosh. Uh, but some of the other scores. So I'm a uh, most of you who listen to this show um, know that I'm the son of a band director. Uh, was a music major at at App State University, and so been around music all my life. I uh, you know I I, I have um, one of my favorite soundtracks was uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Like, oh I, wow! I played that one to death, and again, I think we talked about it. On, I can't remember what show we talked about, but like, you know, when you when you add electric guitar to the film to the score, uh, I remember hearing that. I think the first time I heard it was in Mr. Holland's Opus, thinking, "Oh my gosh, you can do that!" Like that was so cool. So, yeah, it's this really interesting thing. And then for me, it's really interesting. So you talking about, you know, you were you were getting into it as a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. I liked it, but I didn't really get into just just listening to film scores, really getting into film scores until I worked on TV shows and movies. Because all day, for 10 hours a day, I listened to people talk. Right? I mean, that's, that was my job, was to listen to them talk and criticize how they talked and make sure that the sound was good uh, on the movie and, or on the show. And if they slurred a word, I have to like point to the script supervisor to make sure that they got that note down. And so in between takes, I didn't want to listen to music with words. And so I started buying up soundtracks like crazy. And I bought, um, like at the time, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, the third one had just come out. Brilliant. And I loved that score. I probably um, played that one 30 or 40 times on my breaks. Along with, again, I had like those old iPod classics. You know, that, yeah. that clicks when you spin the wheel. But, yep. it, but it had like, I think it had like a 30 gig one or a 32 gig one or something. So I had, I had a, and again, that was back when you had to buy it, right? Like, like iTunes now, I pay them, I pay them what, four bucks a month or something and I can just have whatever I want. But I paid a lot of money so I can have music to listen to so I wouldn't have to listen to people talk. So that's kind of my background with that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I wish uh, it's interesting. You, you, the way that I was able to listen to the music um, away from the film, I did it two ways. I had those 24 page booklet, um, those story read alongs. Um, you know, they did it Star Wars, Empire, Jedi, they did a whole bunch for Indiana Jones. Um, I think they did a bunch of Star Trek and Black Hole and whatever. And they would have uh, dialogue from the movie, but also the actual film score playing behind it. And so I would play those to death just to listen to uh, whatever the score was that I was listening to. The other way I was able to listen to music, again, without purchasing it, 
and a lot of film score fans did this was grab a tape recorder and uh, put it up against the television and just record the movie or mostly the end credits where you had no dialogue, no sound effects. And hopefully there was an end credit suite and you can listen to the music on its own. And you would hope that no one in the room is going to cough or sneeze or make a noise in room they're recording. And so that's the way that I generated my first collection of soundtrack music. Um, but as I said, it was, yeah, it was that day in the library where I found all of the Boston Pops recordings with all of Williams's music. It was just, that was a magical, magical day. And, uh, you know, I started my radio show with 75 albums that I purchased myself. And I thought that was enough to do a, <laughs> a three hour radio program. And I soon found out that I was running out of CDs rather quickly. Um, but you know, over the years it's, the collections just ballooned to over 6,000 and that's because of the record labels who always want to have music played on the show. So, I mean, I could not have kept all these albums behind me or even purchased them on my own if it wasn't for, you know, the support that I had for the program, because, uh, this hobby would be really, really, really expensive. But, um, I mean, there's, a, I just can't believe some of the albums that I do. I mean, I'm going to show this to you and I know your, your audience will be able to see it, but this is like, this is my Holy grail album and this i remember finding i was in college and this is the arista four cd set of the star wars trilogy and i never owned the lp the cds or the cassettes and this is the first time i ever bought star wars music and it had um all the scores but with previously unreleased material over four discs great booklet great package and uh, it came out in 1993. I picked mine up, I think, in 1997. cost me 80 bucks, and I spent weeks with that album. And it still remains, like, one of the greatest things I ever, I ever purchased. And just to get a chance to hear Star Wars finally on my own stereo, away from the sound effects and the dialogue, was one of the most magical moments of my, really, my entire life. That's, that's a real significant moment in my kind of soundtrack uh, listening. That's really cool. That's that's super super interesting. Um, yeah, hearing you say that, I mean, it it again, it, you know, it reminded me of a thing. And then we're going to talk about the music itself here in just a second. But um, one of those moments for for me was actually not that long ago when I was able to purchase tickets for myself and my dad. So my dad is again, he was a band director for thirty years, and he's one of the reasons why I loved Star Wars, Star Trek. Um, sci-fi in general, music, um, you know, is, is, you know he, he was a lot of that big influence. Um, and not for any reason other than he would just sit and watch it with me. It was never like, hey, watch this because this is cool or, you know, oh, here's all the information behind it or whatever. It was always just like, hey, I'm going to watch Star Wars. You want to watch it with me? It was always just kind of this... this really kind of sweet, chill moment with Dad. Um, and the first time he took me to the theater was to see Star Trek Generations. And wow. so it's a bad movie, and I know it's a bad movie, but it, it, <laughs> I hold a, a special place for it in my heart because of what it is in, to, in relationship to my dad. So, um, but I was able to buy tickets to go do the Star Trek experience where they have a, the orchestra play and then they have scenes from the movie on a big screen. And uh, it was a really lovely experience. And um, 
it's really, really well directed, uh, as in the show itself, not just like conducted. I mean, the musicians, the musicians are great, but like they really want to play on your emotions. So it's not like it's just whole scenes from a movie or from the shows and the movies. It is scenes, but they're picked specifically together so that when they're playing the music, you're getting an overarching theme, right? So like we're going to play the Klingon theme. So you're going to get different battle scenes from whatever. Or we're going to play, you know, the really sweet part when... Um, you know, there's a sad part happening, and you're going to get... I mean, there's a moment when, right before they cut to uh, intermission, Dad and I are both literally wiping our, you know, our tears off our face because it was all of the sad moments in Trek together in these moments. And I'm just looking at Dad, and he's like, don't judge me. I'm like, I'm crying too, man. It's fine, you know? So it was, it was real special. Yeah, those moments are, those moments are so sacred. Um and I'm not sure whether you know about the, the 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 live in concert series where they play scores to the movies. Yeah. So I got to see Empire Strikes Back with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Uh, I mean, just listening to one of my all-time favorite scores of all time played live in complete form was magical. But I got to take my son to go see it with me. I mean, he likes the movies. Um, you know, he used to watch them as a kid. But, you know, he's not a huge fan. But he knew how important it was for me and my daughter didn't want to go my wife didn't want to go but my my wife said you know take take liam you know i think it'd be something that he he would enjoy and and we did and he still talks about it to this day and how great of an experience it was even though you know he you know he, he can he recall a few themes and, and he might not watch watch the movies but he knows that that was a very 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 special uh moment for me but it was a special moment not just because I got to see my one of my favorite movies and one and hear one of my favorite scores, but you know, being there with my son, I got to see Raiders Lost Ark with him as well, and the same sort of feeling. I mean, those are just incredible um, events, and I'm not sure. Yeah, and, and you know, and seeing seeing you know these movies. The great thing about Star Wars, and and seeing some of your favorite movies with your kids is getting to see their first reactions to certain things or or hearing certain things for the very first time. It's like reliving the movie for the very first time, but you're reliving it through your children's eyes. And so seeing Star Wars with my kids, and I think all parents go through this, um, again, another magical moment. And you get to see, I mean, I, I don't remember, well, it was really tough for me to experience the, you know, I am your father sequence because I already knew that having watched Return of the Jedi first. So getting to introduce that to my son and getting to see his reaction. I even took pictures and, you know, him literally turning around and looking at me with his, you know, mouth open, right. And not knowing what to do and what to say. And the first thing he came out of his mouth was really. And I think most people back then also said the exact same thing. So getting, getting to experience that sort of stuff with, with, you know, family members for the very first time is, is quite magical. And, and, uh, yeah, even the same thing with the music. Um, you know, we would play Duel of the Fates constantly because that was one of his favorite things to, to listen to because he always liked the episode one lightsaber battle. So, yeah, John Williams is, you know, his impact is uh, just as great as as, as George Lucas's um, in, in movies. It's, you know, John Williams to, to music and, and film scoring. I mean, back in 1977, that was that was something that was something new or he brought something back. 
and people took notice. It was a it was a definite change for for film music back in May of 1977. It definitely was, and um, that's that's a good jumping off point. I do have to interject one last little personal thing. So I am envious of you that you got to have that moment with your son. Uh, <laughs> my son, um, he discovered YouTube before. You oh know. no! So he he knew all about the Vader parts. He knew all about it. So when we got to sit down and finally watch Empire Strikes Back, he had known for three years. But we also watched it <clears throat> for the first time with my five year old daughter, which I thought it might be some of the stuff might be kind of over her head, and so she was sitting in my lap when that moment happened, and then she just kind of looked at me and she goes, "Wait, what?" You know, the, the five year old. <laughs> I said, yeah. She goes, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it didn't really bother. Honestly, the only, the only thing that bothered her, the, or the, really the thing that affected her the most, was the Rancor scene from uh, in oh, wow. Jedi. Wow. That part scared her a little bit. Mm. And uh, I said, hey, just remember, it's, it's just a puppet, right? It's just a puppet. It's not real. Um, but anyway, she still buried her head in my chest. <laughs> yeah. um, but specifically going back to your point about John Williams and and he kind of, the one thing that I remember, again, is, is I say remember from um, hearing about it, reading about it, learning about it in school and, and just in, in life was that, you know, in the 70s, it was very much the rage to do synthesized music, right? It was very, you know, keyboard synthesized, like, you know, having your Flash Gordon scored by you know, Queen, you know, like... Uh, it was very different time, so it was very, frankly, ballsy of George Lucas to go to to John Williams and say, "I want full orchestra," and it was it was a gutsy call to do this. And I mean, obviously, it paid off. I mean, it's it's regarded as the best soundtrack ever. You know, it won a thousand awards, and it's it it kind of, I mean, Star Wars changed the industry altogether, right? I mean putting the credits at the end of the movie. That was a big damn deal in 77. I mean, they got he got sued. Um, or a lawsuit was brought against him. And he said, hey, you know, it's just, you know, we won't do it again. Well, then he did it again for Empire, and then they, they went to sue him again. And But by that point, the the industry had kind of corrected itself. And um, and so then all movies started doing that kind of thing, that, that cold open straight into the movie. But, I mean... George Lucas and John Williams, man, they they were bucking trends and and setting, you know, all, all this stuff. It was very crazy what they did these these trendsetters in the seven, late seventies. Yeah, it was a really weird time, like you said, for for music. There was a there was a lot of experimentation going on, and I've you know talked to a bunch of people who will. You know, we all say you know John Williams changed film music for the better, or brought back the orchestral score that was seemingly dead from the golden age. And uh, there's some people that say, you know, it, it was John Williams' Star Wars was quite possibly one of the worst things that has ever happened to film music because it essentially killed a bunch of styles that were in style at the time in the 70s. And those scores weren't being written anymore. Everybody wanted the big John Williams um, orchestral sound. And that lasted for quite a while, and then you know, um, uh, Vangelis came came by and 
and basically uh, turned you know soundtrack music on its head in '81 and '82 with *Chariots of Fire* and, and *Blade Runner*. But, um, but yeah, 1977 was was a was an interesting time because you know John Williams was a as you said a very forward thinking person at that time, and you know he was very conscious as to what was being laid into science fiction at that time, which was mostly electronic music. And he felt that that was very cliche. And so he knew right from the beginning, uh, when he started editing his film that he started putting up, uh, music from his classical collection as the temp track. And the temp track bleeds through in Williams' score, and we, and we all know that. You know, we get Holtz and Stravinsky, and, and uh, you know, you can even say uh, Eric Wolfgang's uh, Korngold's King's Row for the main title. Um, but that's where he was going with it. He was bucking the trend. He wanted to do something completely different. However, from reading through the J.W. Rinsler making of Star Wars book, uh, John Williams, uh, sorry, uh, George Lucas did for a brief moment want to create a score that was a mix of uh, country and, and Western music with a full orchestra, which is kind of neat. It's sort of, it's sort of what they're doing on the Mandalorian because yeah. they've made Mandalorian into a Western and, and you have those kind of Western tropes in that score by Ludwig uh, Goransson. Um, so that was thought about back in 1975, 76 when, when Lucas was, uh, compiling the temp track or thinking about the music, but it was really the meeting with Steven Spielberg, um, that solidified, you know, John Williams being hired, uh, cause Spielberg recommended him, uh, for, uh, when he was working with him on, on, on Jaws and George Lucas liked the score to Jaws. So they said, yeah, John Williams is your man. And that's how John Williams, uh, got involved with, uh, with Star Wars. Wow. I, um, I just the idea that he killed uh, a genre of music from that time um, is an interesting kind of thing to think about. Because now again, I'm a product. I'm a I'm a kid of the '90s. I was born in '82, but the '90s is where I kind of you know grew up, so to speak. And I I have an appreciation for music of the '70s and '80s, but I look I look back and listen back to some of that stuff back then. It's and it's it's kind of bad in my opinion and maybe bad's the wrong word but it's just different and it doesn't kind of jive with what i like so uh, personally just me talking i'm kind of glad he killed some of that other stuff but i do <laughs> like uh, van vangelis's there you know again like you said chariots of fire and i like what i love what they did with blade runner and i also really like that the idea of doing Synth pop is the wrong word, but like that kind of synth orchestra. I mean, you know, you look at like that, like like what Daft Punk did for Tron Legacy. You know, say mm -hmm. what you want about that movie. the The music is really, really good for that movie, and there's there's been other um, other examples of it. And I know we're getting. Uh, I know it's not new to have um, film scores be conducted, not conducted, but like composed by. You know, pop stars. I mean, guys, Junkie XL is really hot right now. But I mean, even back in the day, you still had Queen doing stuff. I mean, Queen did the the actual. Well, they did. 
they did the songs for Highlander. I recently um right. uh recently watched Highlander for another podcast in which it was funny. I didn't know. I thought because I was told that Queen did the soundtrack for Highlander, so I thought Queen wrote the score to Highlander, which he did not, or they did not. Right. So right. I'm listening to the music, and there's a couple of moments where I go, "Man, did did Michael Kamen rip off this movie for Prince of Thieves? Because this sounds just like Prince of Thieves." <laughs> and then I get on IMDb while we're recording, and I'm like, "Holy crap! Michael Kamen did the score for Highlander." So. He probably thought, you know, in in 92 when he did uh, Prince of Thieves, no one saw Highlander, so I could borrow from myself, you know, so it's fine. Oh, yeah, I mean, he definitely has a distinct style, for sure. I mean, you listen to, like I said, you can even listen to Mr. Holland's Opus, and you could find, you know, Mr. Holland's Opus in in in, uh, in Band of Brothers. You can find oh, yeah. Lethal Weapon in Edge of Darkness. You can find... Um, Robin Hood in one of his last scores, uh, Back to Gaia. I think that's the name of the film. Um, he definitely had a very, very distinct well, uh, style. He was, I mean, he was really one of the best. I mean, he was an incredible rock and roller who had this gift for the symphony orchestra, and he can write a tune and orchestrate the hell out of a of a of a symphony orchestra. The guy was incredible, and, and unfortunately left us way too soon. But yeah, he was he was great. And and another guy I point to because again. These guys, these giants in our in 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 this industry, your John Williams, your James Horners. I always kind of think of John Williams, James Horner, and Jerry Goldsmith as kind of being equals of their time. And um, I, I'm not saying that Goldsmith or, or Horner are as good as Williams, but I think they have produced music that is as good as Williams. Is that is that fair to say? Oh yeah, that's um, my trifecta. That's my holy yeah. uh, trinity of composers. That's who I grew up with. Those right. are the three that I grew up in with and, and and grew up with to they introduced me to film music, those three. And then everything just went off of them and to finding guys like James Newton Howard and Danny Elfman and Alan Silvestri. Sure. And and whatnot. But yeah, back in the back in the well, I mean Goldsmith was already writing stuff in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, he's one of those innovators in the seventies that was doing some weird and wacky stuff and, and John Williams could have easily, you know, killed his career. But yeah, James Horner came off of Goldsmith and, and, uh, and Williams. So love those three. They're fantastic. Yeah. I mean, those three defined my childhood because again, Goldsmith created Star Trek, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I know Alexander Courage wrote the theme, but, um, uh, oh gosh, I have Way wrong name, Gene um, Roddenberry. Roddenberry. I almost said Gene Hackman, and then I almost said somebody else. Uh, I almost said Jerry Roddenberry. There we go. So Gene Roddenberry <laughs> wanted Goldsmith to compose the theme, and Goldsmith, I says I can't, but here's my guy um, Alexander Courage, and so the two of them collaborated to create that theme for Star Trek, so that when it was time to write the motion to do the motion picture. It, it, the natural choice was Goldsmith, and and the theme that he wrote for the motion picture would be eventually become the theme from for the next generation, and then he would go on to do Voyager and Star Trek Five and Seven and Eight and Nine. I mean, I know he's not like John Williams has done all of the original nine. Of course, Michael Giacchino did um, Rogue One and. 
the other John Powell on solo. John Powell did solo, and I love John Powell. He's one of my of like yes. like the new guys on the block. Him, I love John Powell. Probably a little I more. I think he's the best composer working today. He's like so, he's even so. even more so than John Williams. I think Powell's the guy. Yeah, I do too. He, he's he's perfect. Yeah, and I love and again and I I think Hans Zimmer. You know, he's Zimmer is kind of like that bridge between the your Williams, you know, generation mm-hmm. and like your John Powell, Giacchino guys. But like, like Zimmer's like the middle there, and Z- Zimmer's still great. But I mean, I still get fired up whenever I hear How to Train Your Dragon. You know, it's just yes. he should have won that Oscar. Just I, I agree completely. <laughs> I, I still have this fight. Um, yep, I agree. Uh, anyway. Not my point. My point was is that yes, those those ty- we were also kind of talking about how they kind of borrow from each other, which I think is okay. Yeah. I really do because there are times when I'll be watching, especially an older movie, a Williams movie. Like for example, uh, we did for the podcast uh, the Adventures of Tintin, which is a Spielberg directed Williams no, 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 a joint. And there's a specific scene. Have you seen that movie, Adventures of Tintin? Oh yeah. So the yes. the one shot, it's a one shot, which I love. Yep. And now again, it's a CGI movie, so it's not as cool as say the one shot from Atonement or in Serenity or Daredevil or nineteen seventeen. But it's when they're they, the 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 guy fires the bazooka and blows up the dam, and so we have this whole scene, and the music is wonderful. But I'm sitting here listening, going, okay, well that's Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Okay, that sounds a little bit like far and away, and that you know what I'm saying. There, there's a lot of these moments, right? And which is, I, I still love because it because Tintin kind of feels like all of those characters kind of rolled into one. Um, and and to my point, I was trying to make also about that Michael Kamen was like specifically James Horner. I can listen to a James Horner piece of music for about five minutes, and as soon as I hear that trumpet part, I go, "Oh yeah, that's James Horner." You know, he loved that trumpet part. Um, so anyway, that was that was a long monologue to get to where I was trying to get was just simply that I know composers borrow from each from themselves, and yeah, they they you know. they have a a particular style. I mean, Horner is infamous, infamous, infamously known for. You know, taking a theme from here and, and using it there and borrowing this from there and that and then grabbing a a classical piece of music and just using it, you know, note for note in his score or maybe chasing, changing a note here and there. And huge controversy with, with James Horner, um, especially in the film, film music community. But I, I still think that he was one of the best dramatists and he wrote some of the most, if not the most emotional music I have ever heard in in film, I mean, there are so many uh, scenes and films that I've watched that it's because of the music that Horner wrote that just has me almost sobbing. And um, there's no other composer that that has really done that consistently. And you know, Williams um, Williams has his isms. You know, there's things that are are distinctly John Williams. Uh, you know, he, and you can hear his influences. They're, they're, they're obvious. I mean, the, the guy knows what he's doing classically trained. He knows his classical music. He's a pianist himself. Uh, he's a jazz composer, musician. I mean, the guy knows anything and everything. Um, I mean, you can talk about Holtz and Stravinsky and Bruckner and all you want in, in Star Wars. But what I find 
and found that he did with Star Wars and going back to that is, I mean, you have the dreaded temp track. Composers hate temp tracks. And if you tell a composer to, you know, stick with the temp track, I want to, I want exactly that. I mean, there's, you're restricting your composer. There's only so much that the composer can do to make it different. And composers get blamed for that all the time. But, you know, Williams took the temp track and, and understood what he needed to do. I mean, he stayed fairly close to it, even though it was said that Ivanhoe was, uh, Nicholas Roche's Ivanhoe was played over the main title. Many people say that it sounds like Eric Wolfgang Korngold's King's Row. Um, but there's other pieces that you can tell. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that comes from Stravinsky. That comes from Holtz and whatnot. But he, the way he molds it all together into kind of one singular piece or, you know, symphonic work, it becomes a John Williams thing. That is John Williams, especially with the way that he writes his, his themes. Those themes are so distinctly Star Wars. You will not mistake them for anything else. So a really talented, skilled composer can take that temp track, but make something of it that feels fresh and new. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't want to keep doing this. I'm doing it to myself. I'm sabotaging my own show, but there's a fun little story that you may or may not be aware of, but, um, Star Trek six, the undiscovered country, um, famously, Sounds like Mars from the, the, um, the Gustav Holt suite, Mars. And Mars is used a lot, right? Bringer of war, whatever. So the, the director, who also directed um, episode two, or sorry, uh, Wrath of Khan, he was looking for a specific, a specific sound. And they used Mars as that temp track. And Horner was unavailable. It wasn't like he said no. He was just unavailable. And then I think they went to Goldsmith and said, we want you to write basically a Star Wars, or Star Trek, excuse me, Star Trek version of Mars. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm either going to write it the way I want to write it, the way that it should fit the movie, because the movie, a lot of the themes about the movie is the upcoming war that eventually doesn't happen. And uh, he didn't do it. And so they had a, they hired another guy who basically said, I'm looking for a job. I'll do whatever you want me to do. So, yeah. Yeah, Eidelman wrote a, a demo um, based on those notes. He's like, this is, this is what we want. This is what we need. This is what the main title is like. And so Cliff Eidelman wrote about a two and a half, three minute demo piece. That is essentially what you hear over the main title of the film now. But yeah, I mean, Nicholas Meyer has wanted to use, uh, Holtz's the planets. I think he wanted it on star Trek two and then tried again on star Trek six. It's just so expensive to license. It's almost impossible. Um, so you might as well get a composer to, <laughs> to do what you want to do. So, but yeah, Cliff Eidelman did a, I mean, for as young as he was too, he was in his early mid twenties, much like Horner was when he did star Trek two. Um, you know, Eidelman was fresh, just brand new, and he knocked that score out of the park. Oh, yeah. It's still a really good score. I mean, it really is. And he did a really good job on it. And uh, I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, Trek would be – because at that point – because, like, Star Wars, to take a chance on John Williams, they were taking chances everywhere because they couldn't afford to be super safe. 
But this is the sixth movie of a very established franchise that to to take a chance on this other guy is is pretty interesting, you know. It's 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 really interesting. So but it, it still reminds me of the um Ray Parker Lewis slash Huey Lewis in the news debate, you know. Yes. When when, yes. when the you know producers of Ghostbusters went to Huey Lewis and said, Hey, that song, I want a new drug, we want you to write a song that sounds exactly the same, but only for Ghostbusters. And he said no. And then Ray Parker Lewis was like, I'll do it. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> yeah. That's why it sounds exactly the same. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's you know, there's composers that have been taken to court for various different reasons. Oh gosh, yeah. uh, you know, famously James Horner um, got in trouble with the Nidorota estate for Honey I Shrunk the Kids. I think Hans Zimmer got in trouble with the Holtz estate for Gladiator. I'm pretty sure Williams might have gotten sued at some point for something that he ripped off somewhere. Um it happens. Yeah. It just happens. But like I said, it's usually, it, it is mostly due to the directors who get stuck with the temp track because it really is the only aspect of the movie that is really out of their control. They cannot write the music themselves. And on top of that, directors have unless a really, James, really hard uh... time talking musically to a composer. Composers would rather you not try to talk musically to them. They're like, give me a feeling of the scene or tell me sort of what you want here and what you want you want there, but try not to say I want six oboes and five French horns and this, that, and doing a ostinato here and blah, blah, blah. Don't say that to a composer. You've got to trust your composer. That's a very, very hard thing to do. Nowadays, with computer technology and and the amount of uh, demos that composers, I mean, composers essentially have to write a score, flesh it out electronically with their samples and put it up against the picture before they even go to the recording stage. Where back then, I mean, George Lucas has a spotting session with John Williams and says, you know, we want themes for this person, this person, this person, this person. This is an exciting part. No music here, music here. And then Williams spends two months on his own writing whatever he's writing. And George Lucas is just like, I'm going to edit. And hopefully when we get to the to the stage in London with the London Symphony Orchestra, what John Williams is going to perform for us is going to be exactly what we need. And that was a scary, that's a scary thing yeah. for a director uh, especially back then when you can only hear maybe a piano reduction of a score. And that's why you got to be, you know, as um, you got to be a trusting director with your composer. You got to have a great relationship with your composer. And uh, John Williams has great relationships, great collaborations. And, you know, he found one with Lucas, found it with Steven Spielberg and uh, numerous other directors as well. So, um, you know, and that's why they use him. He's just so good at what he does. Yeah, well, when you're, yeah, when obviously when you're really, really great at it, it makes, it makes the director's job a lot easier to trust you, um, to to just to go off and do the thing, like you said in '77. That's what you did. Last time I'm going to do this, I promise. Okay, I don't promise, <laughs> but there's a great vignette that they did for the behind the scenes on Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, that was uh, Ron Watt, Ron Ron Rise. Ray, Ray Wise. Robert Wise. Robert Wise directed, thank you. The guy that did The Sound of Music. And, yeah, and Go- uh, no, right? Uh, West Side Story. I thought he did The Sound of Music too. Hey, he might have. I think he did. I don't know. Um, okay. Anyway, he's, he's the director and Goldsmith is the composer. And 
Goldsmith, um, uh, basically, he, he wrote the theme as if it was a sailing ship, right? The Enterprise is a sailing ship. It's a nautical theme. And they, they're doing the scene where they're unveiling the new Enterprise, and you have like this, it's like a seven-minute, you know, shot of, you know, showing off the Enterprise. I mean, it's like starship porn, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they listen to the music that was, was written, and, and the director just looks at him and just walks out of the studio. He just walks away. And Goldsmith chases him down. And he goes, what's wrong? And he goes, uh, he's, you, know, uh, you know, he's kind of hemming and hawing because he doesn't want to like hurt his feelings, right? And Goldsmith finally just says, you have to tell me what's wrong. And he says, there's no theme. There's no theme. And then they went back and listened to it. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're right. There's no theme. It's just like this, just, it's just music. And so when he wrote it so that when the, when the camera pans and you get the full on the Enterprise, it's when you get the downbeat of the... The da 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 da. That's how they got to the theme. Is because there wasn't one. He had to create a theme. I just I love that kind of stuff. So, and that's yeah. Again, I mean, there was a germ of a theme in the unused cues. It was there. You can hear it. Mm-hmm. It's it was it was it was a few notes away from being what we now know as the classic Jerry Goldsmith theme. It the the feeling of the Enterprise cue. What you're talking about. It's still there. It, but you're right. It's just the the actual melody just wasn't developed enough. And and Goldsmith didn't have one at the time. He just didn't. It was really one of the toughest things that he had to do. But then eventually he went back and I think there was about seven cues that he had to completely re-record because then he finally had that theme. And that's when the score uh, uh, came alive. And and I mean, even John Williams would tell you that uh, when, when writing, you know, the themes for Star Wars, um, you never know when inspiration's gonna hit and there are times where he says that he could be sitting at a piano just noodling away and it would take him two weeks to find a theme or there are times where and i'm thinking it was the raiders march where that theme just came off really easy for him and then just developed everything around that and i mean thematic music also came very easy for someone like uh, james horner who we were talking about earlier but williams would be one of the first to admit that as much as, you know, all the classics themes that he wrote just for this series, just for these first three movies, I mean, just think about all the melodies they had to come up with. And some of them are just all-time classics. Um, I mean, he could be working at these and trying to find the right note, the right orchestration, anything, and it could take him weeks, whereas something like, I mean, who knows how long it took him to come up with the, the Imperial March. That could have been a day. It could have been two weeks. But eventually it hits these guys. And the other thing is the amount of pressure that these composers are under. From what I was reading, you know, Williams really had about two months to basically spot the movie and then write his score. I mean, that's not a lot of time. I mean, eight weeks. I mean, it seems to be normal for 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 movie composers. But, I mean, when composers are just writing on their own with symphonies, they've got months and months and months to develop a full piece of music. But these guys have got to be inspired now right away you know time is money and uh it better be good or else you're you know you're going to be replaced so i don't envy composers and and the amount of work that they have to do in order to just be inspired immediately i can't imagine how again how williams came up with all these themes it's it is just one of the greatest accomplishments 
in, in not only film score history, but in film history, I think. Well, and the a thing that's very specific to this, because uh, I was watching kind of in preparation for this, you know, for tonight, I was watching some other interviews uh, with John Williams and the fact that, you know, Empire Strikes Back, I think that's what it was, Empire Strikes Back, or maybe, hmm. The interview was, um, was, uh, was in preparation for The Phantom Menace. Uh, that the interview that I the clip that I played for beginning was for promotion for the Phantom Menace, and that was that's what I'm trying to remember. I'm gonna I'm make sure I get my fact right, but it was he had all the music from Star Wars already, but I think it was for Empire Strikes Back, in which ninety percent of the music was new. Like like yeah. it's the sequel movie, but ninety percent is brand new. And that almost feels like that's kind of like unheard of, you know. I just, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure that that happens probably more than I realize. You know, like I'm sure that the of the six you know, Mission Impossible movies, other than the Mission Impossible theme from the TV show, I would bet that a lot of the music score is probably very different. But those movies don't rely on the score to to make you think or feel. They're just relying on Tom Cruise to do some next crazy stunt. Um, so, uh, you know, but I mean, just, again, it's, that's what has always really, really impressed me about John Williams and these movies in particular, these three movies in particular, is that, uh, you used the phrase earlier when we were chatting offline, calling your needle drop moments. And I didn't quite understand what you're talking about, mm, but, yes. but, but to, de- to define it, um, needle drop moments is basically when you just take the record from the last movie and just stick it into the score of your new movie. And, and I've gone on several soapbox. I'm not going to do it tonight. Um, you know, in other movies, particularly the Harry Potter movies where they do that. And it really angers me because it's lazy. And, and I'm not talking about like, Ooh, there's Leia on screen in empire. So we're going to play the Leia theme. I'm talking about the exact same two and a half minute track that you wrote for, the fifth movie of Harry Potter, and now you're going to insert into the sixth movie of Harry Potter. Um, I, I don't feel like there's really ever any true moments of that in these three movies. There is only really, I mean, there's two different ways you can talk about uh, needle drops or reuse of music. So in Return of the Jedi, just as they're about to fire on the the reactor inside the uh, inside the second Death Star, they in its inexplicably play some Empire Strikes Back music for the first 30 seconds instead of the Through the Flames track, which John Williams wrote. Now, eventually it segues into the the, the Through the Flames uh, track that uh, Williams wrote, and it, and it works perfectly, but I have no idea why they decided that they needed to replace like the first 30 seconds of it, because it's actually really well done and it fits the visuals uh, perfectly. And there's a couple of changes here and there in Empire Strikes Back a- as well, but they're not overly noticeable. But in Return of the Jedi, um, especially with the sail barge battle sequence, uh, that one was being edited constantly. And that film was notorious for being way behind. I mean, there's so many effect shots in that movie that Williams, when he was writing the score, he saw a version of the film, but then he was only given a couple reels at a time to complete. So he would be hand two completed reels that had completed effect shots. 
and he would write to that because that film is locked. Then they'd hand him another couple of reels uh, two weeks later. He'd write to that. Then another couple of reels, and he'd write to that. So it was really tough for him to kind of find a uh, an emotional dramatic arc over over the over the film because he was just writing it so sporadically and 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 only being able to see certain reels at certain times. But it still works. But the sail barge battle was just so heavily edited. It was insane. And Williams wrote a completely different sail barge cue than what you hear in the movie. It is vastly different. And that was essentially taken right out with the exception of the, uh, the victory fanfare that you hear right at the end of, of that, um, of that cue. And it had to be rewritten so quickly because they were behind schedule that they essentially had, uh, someone else basically orchestrate that cue and find pieces from the first Star Wars movie, essentially the TIE fighter attack and the last battle music and insert those uh, pieces of music note for note, although it's a brand new performance, into that action sequence. It works really, really well, I think. It's great. It's great to hear the Rebel fanfare in full glory during that during that part because the rebels are finally all back together for the first time since empire and they're they're kicking butt so it works for me um another portion is the superstructure chase where they're flying through um the death star and heading towards the the big reactor and you basically get a note for note playing of the tie fighter attack music from star wars it's it's note for note with a couple of different variations to match certain things that are happening on screen but I mean, that's exactly what Williams wrote for, for Star Wars. And it doesn't happen, um, all that often in the, in the original trilogy. Like you said, uh, everything else is, is, is original. I mean, even going to Empire Strikes Back, anytime the Imperial March is played, it's never played the same way twice. All those transition cues are all completely different orchestrations played by different instruments different time signatures, different, different keys. It's unbelievable how many different ways that Williams plays the Imperial Mar- and it's played a lot in that movie. So he yeah. had to write these different variations. So you never got tired of it. It's, I mean, empire is just an absolute masterwork. And I mean, I love all three of them, but I think empire strikes back remains still one of the greatest scores ever composed. Uh, totally agree. Um, and I, I re-listened to all of them today, uh, kind of in preparation for our conversation. And, um, but I mean, to be fair, you know, and announced like most people, we're busy, we're busy people. You know, I have a job plus this you know, gig and, you know, being a dad, like I don't have a lot of time to just sit and listen to music. So fortunately today I had a work day that allowed me to, that, that I could, I, this is going to sound bad. But I had some mindless tasks to do today, right? It's, you know, it's a couple days before Thanksgiving. All I'm literally doing is trying to get um, certain, uh, we, we call it digital signage. Just trying to get the digital signage displays to work. I mean, it's as basic as you get. So I was re-listening to this. So I was able to really listen for things that I don't normally get to hear because you're distracted by the visuals. And... <clears throat> And so hearing you talk about like there's these little kind of motifs and moments that are dropped in, kind of merged. Like I remember listening to the Return of the Jedi, the soundtrack, and you know 
when you've seen the movie so many times that you hear the music, you know what scene it is. Even though, the, for some reason, the album is not in order, which is weird to mm-hmm. me. I, always, I don't know why I don't like that, but anyway. Blame John Williams. Sure, I'll blame him. <laughs> he, d- he does it on purpose for, uh, for, for listenability. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we can go into that later. Yeah. Anyway, continue your point. It's, and it's fine. It's his choice. I don't really... It's, it's whatever. It annoys me, but, but also there's also kind of like, ooh, which, which is next? It's going to be, oh, it's going to be uh, Luke and Leia, okay? And then, oh, it's the parade of Ewoks, right? So, but when it got to the reactor scene, you mentioned to me, I think, earlier specifically about that, and I was listening for it, and I still didn't pick up on it, and I was listening for it. So that's how subtle it is, or that's just how you, um, I'm not... Trained yeah, you to... won't hear it on the album. You won't hear that needle drop on the album at all. Yeah. Um, and it depends on which album you're listening to, because the first time Through the Flames was ever released was on the 1993 Aristo box set, because Return of the Jedi was the only album out of the three films that had a single LP release. Just one. Uh, Star Wars was a double LP, and Empire was a double LP. But apparently they were... Losing money. There was a lot of money that had to be um, given upfront for the rights to the music. And I think, um, what's the record label? RSO. Uh, they didn't want to pay that much for Jedi. And so that's why it was a one-disc release. So that's why a lot of music yeah, from well, Return of the Jedi was missing off that album. Yeah, and so you didn't get tunes. it until 1993. And then subsequently you got it on the special edition releases that came out in 1997. So that track, so I don't know which one you were listening to. Um, it's, but you can, but the, the, the needle drops or any edits that you hear in the film will not be on the soundtrack. Okay. Yeah. I was listening to the 83 one. I wanted to listen to as early as one that I felt like was supposed to be the original. Yeah. So that was, that's the LP. So that one is a lot of concert suites. So I'm not sure if. You know, but Williams wrote, and still does to this day, he'll write alternate versions of of uh, tracks, or he will create concert suites of his theme. So the Jab of the Hut music you hear on the album, actually, I don't even think that's on the album. Um, the Jab of the Hut theme, or let's say even the Parade of Ewoks, or Leia, Luke and Leia, those are all concert suites. Those are you, you will not hear those as played on the album in, in the movie. Um, and he does that with Empire, like Imperial March, Yoda's theme. Uh, they're all concert suites. Even Princess Leia's theme on um, Star Wars is a brand new recording that was not used uh, in the film. And he does that uh, quite often um, with his with his films. So, I mean, he's just a... he The way he developed themes and, and creates these little concert pieces within five minutes or it's just incredible but yeah like jedi's a jedi's a tough one to get through because it's just full of concert suites source music and a lot of the music that you wanted to hear is not there and i think it's only like a what it's like a 40 minute release or something like that Yeah, it's it's 11 songs 45 minutes oh that's brutal that's brutal and the first time you got to hear the complete score again was in 1997 um on the rca victor uh, releases, which still isn't that great. The elements sucked, so the sound was compromised. And so, I mean, we've been waiting as a soundtrack community since 1997 to hear a proper remastered release of 
all of these scores, Jedi especially, in proper sound, and it's we still haven't we still haven't got it. So I mean, what I listen to usually is the '97 Arista release, which I think expanded the score by I think it was like 70, 80 minutes or so. So there's tons of unreleased stuff on the '93 release. Interesting. I need I need to get my hands on that if I can find it. Either like I'm oh, currently it, it, you'd you'd find the box set dirt cheap. I think um, a lot. Of, I've seen a lot on there. And like I said, when I got this brand new, it was eighty five dollars. But I'm sure you can find it for for cheap. Well, I was looking for like online services. You know, like like I'm on Spotify, and the only thing I can find is the remastered Return of the Jedi, yep. nineteen eighty three. And they do that on purpose. <laughs> They did it on purpose. They don't want anything else out but those albums. Yeah, I, I get that. Lucasfilm and Disney. Ah, boy. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, okay, so we're talking about Return of the Jedi. We're going to go out of order, but I don't really care. Sure. Um, one of the few things that I did want to just kind of chat with you specifically about the music was, what are some of our favorite cues from each movie? And I, I hadn't really thought about it, honestly, for... Um, or the original Star Wars, or Return of the Jedi. For Empire Strikes Back, that's easy for me. It's, it's the asteroid field. I mean, yeah, that's me too. It's it's easy for me be, because of not just the sound, that the music, but how the music is connected to the movie. I mean, it feels like as John Williams is watching the the, the Falcon fly through these asteroids, he goes, "Okay, the." The, the Falcon swerved to the left. Well, the high strings are on the left side of the orchestra, so they're going to get the part. And then the Falcon ducks low. Well, that means I need to get some low brass in here. Like, it feels like he did this. And then another thing that he's uh, really brilliant about, and I learned this in school, is when you go, when, you, when the, the camera transitions from up-close shots and then you want to hit... With a wide shot, you want to have a music impact, and on asteroid fields specifically, when the when the the Falcon's flying through, and then it kind of pans back a little bit when we get the Falcon that dives in on that big asteroid, and you get that hit that just smacks you in the face. That brass, it's so impactful, and uh, it's it's really really great. Yeah, what's interesting about what you were just talking about, especially that cut, um, I find that the the two second delay before you see the Falcon come from behind the asteroid, because it, it cuts away from, he says, never tell me the odds. And then we get that cut and it's a close up of the, of the asteroid and it's moving away from the camera. And there's a little bit of an explosion in one of the craters, but Williams is playing this. Um, it's a busy string, um, passage, but it's still very quiet. And it's this little string run for a couple of seconds. And then once the, Falcon comes around the asteroid. I mean, the theme he creates, and again, it's only, this is the only time that we are going to hear this melody in the movie until we get to solo <laughs> and John Powell reuses it, but we never hear the melody for the asteroid field action sequence ever again. And it just, it's, it's in the high register and it just screams along with, with the, the, the heroism of Han Solo and seeing the Millennium Falcon and it darting back and forth from the, from the TIE fighters. As you said, it's absolutely thrilling. And, and the, the entire uh, 
piece um, is just so playful and uh, and 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 like you said, it does hit certain sync points. Like you know, like when when the the Falcon is uh, you know darting back and forth, um, Williams is introducing this trombone, these trombone blasts this dun, 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 as the Falcon you know moves towards the camera and flies away. You know, he it's almost as if he's speaking for the Falcon. It's 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 quite interesting, but yeah, the asteroid field is, I mean, some of the most sublime action scoring you'll ever hear, and and that even comes after the twenty minutes that you heard uh, on the Battle of Hoth, and that's some incredible action music as well. But then, I mean, you end it with the asteroid field, sensational. Well, the and the thing that's really interesting, specifically on Hoth, is I hadn't really noticed it before. Because for Hoth is, for me, way more about the visuals because there's so much happening. It's such chaos. It's just, a, it's a huge battle. And I never really got to cue in on the music until today where I was really listening going, oh my gosh, this is, this is great. Whereas the asteroid field, you're really cued in on the music because there's zero dialogue. It's just the Falcon kind of flying around doing this stuff. I mean, like once he gets past the line, I want to get closer you don't you don't get any more dialogue for a while, right? And uh, you just kind of get to just bathe in the music. But yeah, the Hoth battle is really it's just high energy. It's really really great. Yeah, and it's an insane um, orchestration as well. Uh, it was one of the most um, oddly produced tracks, like the opening uh, battle of battle in the snow cue, where we first see the walkers. Uh, the walkers are represented by two grand pianos. And they just make this absolutely enormous sound. But what Williams wanted to do with that cue in particular was have it to be as mechanical sounding as possible. Mm -hmm. So he included five piccolos, five oboes, eight percussionists, as I said, two grand pianos and up to three harps that are just creating some of the most wild, insane, again, hard hitting um, orchestrations, because again, with all the 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 percussion and the the snares, the 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 cymbals, the 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 marimbas, and the timpanis, just all going crazy. I mean, it's an absolutely busy, insane piece. And while that's all happening, the woodwinds are going bananas, the strings are going bananas. Same with the the brass. It is absolute chaos, and that's exactly what's happening on screen. And I just absolutely love that. You know, even though Williams is writing, you know, film music, something to accompany a, a, a film and most likely a lot of what you're going to hear is just going to get buried by sound effects. He still feels that he has to be the best creatively and artistically. And so he just goes all out with his orchestration, whether you're going to hear it or not, and creates just these incredible just pieces of music that can be enjoyed not only in the film, but also enjoyed outside of the film. And I think that's what really makes John Williams a, a genius. So we jumped right in the middle. Uh, I was going to do uh, Jedi uh, first, or I guess we can do the A New Hope first, but those, those pieces of music are just so high energy and they're just mm -hmm. so attention-grabbing. That it's um, it's hard not to talk about them first. So there we go. We talked about our favorites first, and I think that's pretty evident. Um, 
This is going to be a little weird. Could you hear the music I was playing, by the way? I could, yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. You were talking right over it, and I thought, he's he's a pro. He knows what he's doing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I heard the asteroid people playing. Yeah, either we're going to get sued or we're not. It's fine. <laughs> <clears throat> so let's go back and talk about A New Hope. Sure. So A New Hope, I, I was going back and listening to it today specifically for this part. I wanted to make sure that I had a moment. Because obviously the opening credits is pretty is, – is, the opening credits is one of the most iconic pieces of music in the world, right? I mean, there's Agreed. probably – I don't know. What do you think? Maybe there's probably 10 pieces of music that you could play to 10 strangers on the, on the street that would and would get the majority of them, right? Like I think most Americans or North Americans um, and maybe Western English-speaking Europe would probably get Star Wars – I'm not even going to say Star Trek. It's probably not, but definitely Star Wars. Maybe like the Mission Impossible theme. Um, I'm trying to think. What are some other ones that are just super oh, iconic? Jaws. Jaws. Yeah, Jaws definitely a good one. That's a great one, Jaws. Um, maybe the the Tim Burton Batman. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I mean, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how powerful Titanic is still to this day. I think if you played the Celine Dion, well, if opening, you played the, the Celine song, Dion the song, song, I think yeah. you'd nail it. I think you can get it. Um, yeah. um, I think. I'm trying maybe to think. Like Pirates, even, Pirates of the Caribbean. Maybe Pirates of the maybe? Caribbean. I th- I think that's a pretty. The problem is, is that there's so much other music that sounds kind of like it. Yeah. So like, I could play Gladiator, and my kids think it's Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. Yes. Well, yes. Know. Uh, and that's yeah. a whole other thing, and we're not going to yeah. get into that. Absolutely. Uh, I think maybe Superman, John Williams' Superman, also. Uh, you pretty... know how many times people have confused that w- with Star Wars? It's insane. It's happened really? a lot. You play it, and you're like, "Is that Star Wars?" They all think it's Star Wars. Yeah, I can kind of get that. Yeah, I do. Yep. I'm trying to think of some. But I think others. you know, I mean, maybe Indiana Jones fire? is something that you can you can pick up. You know, after a few sure. notes, you just you just know that's what the, what it is. Yeah, I think yeah, I do think that, but I'm also I think that that fits probably for people that watch you know movies. I I was trying to think of like, again, random guy off the street, like maybe mm. Chariots of Fire. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. Maybe because Things they been did parodied. It. It's been parodied. Well, they also put it in the Olympics for goodness' yes, sake. That's right. The London Olympics <laughs> with Mr. Bean hitting the single. Dum 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 dum. Right. It was it was one of the funniest bits I've ever seen when it comes to music. So I, I think it's safe to say that the Star Wars theme that was one of the most iconic ever. So I'm going to put that one aside as to say is we're not going to use that one um, for, for A New Hope. Uh, so when I was listening back to it today, the part that really got my ears perked up and I actually stopped what I was doing and just sat and listened was the TIE fighter attack on the Falcon. That, to me, was really kind of the... Like oh, because I've because I've heard the Imperial. I have uh, a lot of these on my phone that I play in the car with my kids. When, when the kids are in the car with me, we're listening to film scores. When they're with their mother, she listens to popular music, pop music and stuff, country music stuff like that. Not saying one's right or wrong. I'm just saying my music is better. But um, she also doesn't listen to this podcast, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but we listen to film scores, and it's so funny. You're gonna love this. So my son, first thing he gets in the car, Daddy can listen to Star Wars. Sure. Nice. So I'll put on Asteroid Field. Actually, his favorite. I'm going to play a little bit, and I know you know this, but I'm going to play a little bit of this for you. It's from, um, oh, let's see if I, I don't know if I have it on my this computer or not. It's the um, it's the score from it's the what's it called? It's the not before the finale 
of Phantom Menace, right? Um, and it's the, what's it called? Augie's Parade or something yep. like that. Mm-hmm. And I had never noticed it until, I haven't, I hadn't noticed it until recently listening to it with my son. The trumpet part is synthesized because the notes are so high, you couldn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, a person can't play that high, is my point. Right. Uh, let's see if I can uh, I can cue it up here. Nope. So this is the this is the parade I'm talking about here, right? Yep. And I love this little trumpet part here. This is just such a. I'm going to skip forward here. There we go. Hear that? Yeah, that's not real trumpets. Real trumpets don't sound like that. No. It's, or um, they're either processed. I mean, who knows? It could be that. It could be processed. Yeah. They might have played it. They had Maybe they had to play it down an octave and they it's processed possible. it I mean, the, 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 the London Symphony players could get up there. I mean, they're pretty distinct with their, their trumpet playing. So, Yeah, um, well, yeah. And, and again, I went to a school of music, and I want to brag a little bit. I have some friends that went there who are professional musicians. Like, they play trumpet on video game and film score soundtracks in uh, Norman, Oklahoma and Florida and stuff like that. But like I listened to those guys for four years. They can't do that. Right. Um, but I also think it's okay because it's another world oh, instrument yeah. playing. So I don't really care. Right. I just thought it was funny. Yes. Anyway, that's his favorite. He loves, he loves that piece of music. Then wow. we get into it. He, just, don't, he loves, just don't tell him that that's a, a strange variation of the emperor's theme. Ooh, I didn't know that. Then play the Emperor's theme. The exact same notes. Oh, that's so the cool. Phantom, the Phantom Menace. That's cool. Yeah, his the part he loves is the uh The laughing? Is no the horn rip. Oh really? The horn rip. He loves that. He loves the horn rip. And then my daughter's favorite. Is every time we get when she's in the car, um, if she has control of the radio, which they kind of we kind of go back and forth on who gets to pick, uh, this is what she wants to hear. I'm just gonna give you a few seconds, I'll get into the theme. So, those of you who are playing home, that's that's Doctor Strange. That's yep. Michael Giacchino's Doctor Strange. That's that's her favorite. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's a great my piece. My five-year-old. My five-year-old wants to listen to Doctor Strange. And she always calls him Doctor Stranges. Hmm. Like, Can we listen to Doctor Stranges? <laughs> sure. Well, no it was like my son wanting to watch Phantom Menace. He'd always call it, let's watch Double Lightsabers. He didn't know the name sure. of the movie. That's fair. That's really fair. <laughs> so, going back to A New Hope... Um, Again, this is what happens. You've been on the show before. You know how I my brain is weird. Sure. Um, <laughs> he just yeah yeah I absolutely. It. It's what I expect. Yeah. <laughs> um. So for me, it's the Tie Fighter attack. Mm. I think for me, that's what it is. Do, what, what what would it be for you? Yeah, with Star Wars, um, it could easily be the binary sunset, um, but yeah. there's a real transition moment and it has to do with Luke. It's the biggest transition moment in the film 
and even with the score and it's the burning homestead and i oh, absolutely man. love the the drama that williams is pouring out onto this scene and it is i think it's the turning point for luke where he stops being a, a whiny snotty kid and has to grow up and we're hearing this incredible rendition of the force theme but what's also happening is you're hearing uh, in counterpoint the ds irae and it just feels like and you know lucas is standing and we're seeing him from behind with the 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 wind blowing through his clothes and we see all the smoke and i feel that it's it i don't think necessarily the ds irae at that moment is representing the death of his aunt and uncle, I just feel that it adds an extra bit of power and movement to Luke's transition from being that farm boy to eventually a Jedi. This is, this is where everything changes for him. And Williams is just emphasizing that with those extra uh, horn blasts. And I've always loved that piece. And unfortunately, you know, you're talking about needle drops. This piece was needle dropped into the force awakens when Ray uh, grabs the lightsaber out of the snow from Kylo Ren and it's needle dropped in there and it's so unbelievably distracting because Williams wrote his own piece of music for that moment. And I just felt that that didn't really work. But anyway, Burning Homestead is one of the most emotionally powerful moments, I think, for me in the entire Star Wars saga. Is that is that a is that a cue that's specifically called that? Yes. Yeah. Um, so on your specific. album, I wouldn't. Oh, what would it be called? That's what I was looking for. I was I was hoping that to to play a little bit of it here. Um. I I, I mean I'm I trying to. Th- hmm. I wouldn't know what that track is called on the LP. The the only thing I can I can think of would be, the Imperial Attack, but I would think that'd be the beginning. No, it was, I mean, I think I might have the original, I'm looking through the 93 booklet right now, and whether it was... It's not little people work, is it? Is there anything called Return Home? Yes. So it's at the end of that, probably. Right. And that transitions into the, the Death Star motif, where they go and interrogate uh, Princess Leia. Really cool transition. Here it is. This is it. The TIE fighters go screaming by. So good. It is really good, and it's so funny. I'm glad you pointed out the DA series because, you know, that's a very famous piece of music, and um, I, I've even played it, uh, and I'm glad I wasn't the only one that thought that that's what that was. So that's yeah. good to kind of get a little bit of confirmation bias a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for for me, uh, I'm gonna just to play just a few seconds of it here, but uh, it's just that 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 Tie Fighter attack. It's just really high energy, and that it's all in the high brass there. It's just great. 
uh, just gets me so excited. So there you go. I mean, and the thing about it, and I, and I mentioned, I think earlier on in the program, it just stands on its own as just a piece of music that you can enjoy and you get a start a middle and an end. It just feels complete. It plays through the scenes, but it's hitting specific sync points as well. And that's what masterful composers do. And you're right. It's, it's an incredible seek, just an incredible set piece. I love Williams set pieces and he has them all over star Wars. And that's just, you know, one of the best. One of them. All right. Well, let's jump ahead now to, um, unless there's any other particular cues you want to mention in either a new hope or, well, we'll just stay here for a new hope. Well, I mean, one thing I want to mention, and, and this is something that I think plagues some of the later Star Wars, is that they're just wallpapered with music. And I'm not saying that Star Wars does not have a lot of music, but what I found very interesting, and I noticed this, um, I mean, a few years few years back, but as you watch the final battle, I mean, it starts off with, with a whole bunch of great action music and set up as, as they're, um, you know, going into the trenches. But then there's a point where the music just stops and doesn't play for about five minutes. There's still action going on, but the music doesn't return until Biggs dies. And then we get John Williams is back where I think in a film today, all of that would have been scored every single moment. And I just love the fact that there's a section in the middle of that final battle where all we're seeing is just the viz with the great sound effects by Ben Burt. And, uh, and it's not as, as urgent until Williams is brought back after Biggs's death. So I found that quite interesting and it's mm. rare in big adventure films to, to hear something like that. Like just yeah, silence. It would, yeah. It would be weird to see uh, Jack Sparrow on the bridge of the black Pearl sword fighting with no music. Right. Right. Yeah. That would be a shock, but that's interesting. Again, I think that's uh, another risk. And it's so weird. You said that, and I had to think back in my brain, and I'm reliving the scene going, yeah, you're right. There's a scene where like, where Luke is just like lighting up the Death Star with his laser blasts, and there's no music. And then you know he pulls up, and he says, you know, are you all right? He goes, yeah, I got a little cooked back there. There's no, there is no music there. Yeah. Just, oh, my gosh. I, like, I never thought of it. It's just one of those things. All right. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm just going through here. Uh, the only thing else I can think of is, you know, Leia's theme, which is very beautiful, very melodic, and we get it, uh, it feels like every, all the time, right? I mean, don't we even get a hint of it, don't we, in Revenge of the Sith? Don't we get a hint of it towards the it's end? In, it's in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, when you see her as a baby, um, yeah, we she's, get a little uh, bit her theme there. is played. Yeah. Um, I blew my son's mind away, by the way, when I, her music was playing and I said, that's Leia's theme. He goes, oh, okay, because he's heard it before. So then we've also started watching Harry Potter. Uh, we've watched the first two movies. He's read the first three books. And so when the theme comes in, I said, do you know what that theme is called? He goes, that's Harry Potter's theme. I said, no, it's Hedwig's theme. He goes, he wrote the theme after the owl? I said, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like that. Just my son is just having a hard time with that. Like I could, he, I could hear the gears grinding in his head. Going, why would he write the music after the owl? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And Harry has his own theme, yeah. <laughs> which then changes in the third movie. <laughs> yeah, well, the the third movie is is my favorite movie, and oh. it's also my favorite of the John Williams By three because he only did By the three. Far. But it's yeah, it's so good. The the Buckbeak. Um, 
flight music. The Buckbeak yeah. flight is brilliant. And I love the jazz bit when they're on the bus. Yeah, the um, night bus is amazing. <laughs> the night bus scene is so amazing. And it's Williams is so undercredited for his jazz. Oh, Again, absolutely. Again, Tintin, Tintin is, is just 100% filled with jazz. If you hate jazz, listen to that score. You might change your mind a little bit. Yeah, that or um, Catch Me If You Can. Uh, a lot yeah. of jazz in that, or uh, the terminal. But I mean, that's that's his roots. That's where he started. He was a jazz musician, and then he was, you know, he was a he was a jazz. I mean, so he has some great jazz albums. And he wrote some great jazz scores back in the '60s as well. I mean, it was he's. I mean, and that's why his music is so dynamic as well. A lot of the music is written in a jazz idiom. Um, the, the 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 interesting orchestrations and 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 time signatures and things of that that he incorporates it's it's very jazz oriented. Um, it's tough to pick out, but I mean you can just hear it. Like even in, in in the action music, it almost has kind of like this jazzy movement to it, and it's uh, it's quite unique to Williams. So on to Return of the Jedi. Uh, at some point, we're going to have to wrap up here. So. <laughs> I do have to. I have to say, last week we recovered. We covered Return of the Jedi for the podcast and uh, for the kind of the main episode. And and of course, I bitched as I did about the changing of the song in Jabba's palace to that new abomination. Jedi rocks. Um, I don't. I don't know if Williams had anything to do with it. Nope, I hope he not, did not because it's it's kind of terrible. It is terrible. Um, and I, and I'm not even comparing it to the original because. I let my nine-year-old have a judgment. I let him listen. To, I let him listen to the Disney Plus version first, and then showed him this is what the other version was. And he was like, "Oh, I like that better." It's like, "Well, yeah," because yeah. it's more fun. It's not some dude yelling. Right. It, it feels um, like a piece of source music, something that you would play like in the in this loungy, sleazy, you know, underground of of Tatooine. And and this Jedi rocks pieces. An abomination. It's it's really bad. I mean, this is what it is. Like, if you if you, you know, I mean, that's yeah, great. It's just this. It's just this kind of chill jazz lounge kind of thing. And I don't know why they changed it, unless because they added the scene with the toilet getting eaten by the the rancor, so it would have thrown the timing off a little bit. But I. I don't know. It's, I don't know why uh, they even added that. I don't know why they changed any of that. I like. I, I kind of understand the changing at the end. I get that justification. I don't understand what the purpose of that change was at all. Just a way to sell it, I guess. I mean, there weren't too many. There weren't too many changes in Jedi. Besides really. that and the ending, from yeah. and, well, and then they made subsequent changes later on, like Vader yelling no when he's throwing the Emperor. Yeah down the shaft which is just the dumbest thing um but i don't think there's too many changes oh and well i mean the sarlacc pit changes it has a beak now but i mean again besides that the the, the pacing of the movie stays relatively the same with the exception of that stupid jedi rocks piece yeah um yeah it's just calling know. attention to itself when you didn't need to because we the, the whole original sequence is just this little you know 20 second bit and then it was it was over, but he, I mean, George Lucas really didn't like the, the puppets and the, the animatronics and, and really, um, uh, slice noodles. Is that her? 
name. You know, you can see some of the wires as she's dancing around and she's not really moving the way that he wanted her to move. So that's why he wanted to introduce a new character and have her be more animated. I think that's the justification for him redoing that scene. And it just doesn't work. It's really bad. Just, just so for for you know, not sure what what he's referring to when he says the the no. no! That's it. I, I mean, I I mean it that sucked in Revenge of the Sith, but it sucks in Return of the Jedi. Just yeah. sucks. It's really dumb. I don't. No. It's unnecessary. It is unnecessary. Yep. Uh, all right. Um. <laughs> so. Uh. Okay. Um. Back to uh, so yeah uh, yeah because we 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 did highlight the, some of the changes and I didn't want I don't want this episode to be that and I certainly didn't mean for the three episodes to be us bitching about the changes the uh, they did more in a New Hope than they did the other two which I find interesting I don't know why maybe he because he didn't have the budget that he had for the other two with a New Hope that he wanted to add but like there's so I mean some of the changes I don't really care about. It doesn't really matter that they CGI'd some extra stormtroopers looking for the droids. Um, it doesn't really matter that they they CGI'd a bunch of dumb animals and Mos Eisley. Like it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter that they added when Obi Wan cuts the arm off of that dude that you hear him screaming longer in this version. Um, and I said they probably did that to let like they want my nine year old to think that that guy's still alive. That Obi Wan didn't just murder this guy in the bar. Yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. That's what. That's but there's why just they, so many they, little things that he changed that were. I mean, it's like I, he's just noodling around, um, yeah. and some of them you won't even recognize until like I, I watched the YouTube video earlier because I wanted to uh, find uh, points in the Empire Special Edition where it affected the music, and it, these are changes that I like. Because going back to the point of John Williams crafting uh, versions of the Imperial March that are not the same every time you hear it, in the 1980 version, there are three transitions that come out of Dagobah into a shot of the fleet, the Imperial fleet. And for some reason, in the 80 version, they would cut to a portion of the concert suite of the Imperial March and not hear John Williams' original transitioning cue. But when they did the special edition, they actually changed that. They took those three pieces out and they laid over top what John Williams had originally wrote for those. So, I mean, there are some good things about the special editions. Those are the, that's the minor little thing that I like because it has to do with the music. But then there's another portion and you're talking about the little changes that might not mean anything. And I mean, for, for film score fans, um, you know, we we really pay attention to the, to the little things, and so mm-hmm. the insertion of the snow monster in the cave basically messes around with Williams's music. And there's certain sync points and timings that Williams is hitting with his music, and it seems minor, but essentially, when I used to watch Empire Strikes Back, I always felt that when Luke is hanging upside down in the cave, and he's reaching out for the lightsaber, and it sort of starts jiggling a bit that at that point, John Williams is adding these brass blasts every time it moves. So there's like these little, or these little, um, I think it's the brass or little jiggles on the string. So every time it moves, right, he adds this little accent that I always felt that John Williams was helping 
Luke lift that saber out of the snow and into his hands. But by adding the snow monster, it switches that cue and that no longer makes any sense. It's a little nitpick that people like me pick up, but it just, the impact of the music, um, and it's happened in all the, in any type of change that was made to the special editions, the music gets butchered and its original intent isn't there anymore. But that's a little thing that I notice. <laughs> no, you're, 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 you're totally, you're speaking my language. Again, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the audio guy here, I, I notice, I notice a lot of those little things too. Um, uh, you know, little, little things, uh, usually not always musically. Sometimes it's just, um, just other little dumb things I notice. Um, you know, for example, like, um, like in, in, in Jedi, when, um, when, when Han Solo says, uh, Boba Fett, right? It, it, they they just take the line and they just they just literally repeat it. They just take the audio clip and then just stick it right back in the movie. I mean it's the exact same thing, right? It's yeah. the exact same audio file um or piece of tape. So yeah. like I know those little things, but that's from the original. That that's been forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um that wasn't a change. Um let's just go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room. The yub yub, right? They changed the they changed the ending piece of music, and and I I never understood why until someone told me about five years ago, and I have no idea if this is true. So here you are, the expert, to tell me if my friend is up a creek, um, and that's he told me the reason why they did that was because the. Um, whatever it's called, it's not. I always call it yub 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 nub. Whatever it's called, what it's is it? It's Ewok uh, celebration. Ewok celebration in finale. You know, yeah, it's, but people do call it yub nub. Yeah. Yeah, it's that right. It's yep. um, it's you know the Ewoks playing on the 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 heads of uh stor- dead stormtroopers. I like to to joke that there's actually heads still inside those helmets. <laughs> Remember, these Ewoks were about to eat our heroes. Like, these are savages. True. <laughs> you know, like, they were going to, you know, these are not just cuddly teddy bears. And again, I let my nine-year-old be the judge. I played both pieces, the, the, the Disney Plus version and then the original. And he liked the, the kind of fun, cartoony ending of the original. And he also asked me the questions. And again, this is a boy who has seen episodes one and two. He's not seen three yet because three is a little, for for a nine-year-old, I thought it was a little too rough yet. A little intense. It's a little intense. But he asked the questions. He says, why are they celebrating on Naboo and Coruscant and Kashyyyk? I'm like, well, it's because they're celebrating that the emperor is dead and that they're free. He says, oh, okay. And then... um. But I said, like, which music do you like better? And he's like, well, that one's more fun. And then, of course, they they put Anakin. They put they put Hayden Christensen in ghost form. Which and then that's when I when that's when I say that's where they should when Luke should stop. You know, hey, hold on, guy, stop! I don't know who that ghost. <laughs> I don't know who that right. is. Yep, because that's not the man I just burned. <laughs> right? That's that's somebody else. I don't that stop looking at else. me like that. You know, stop weird that weird look. So, 
Again, if you listened last week, I apologize. I know I made the same joke last week. But, um, and I don't want to get into it. You heard it. Go listen to last week. I get a huge soapbox on it. It's a thing. But do you know why? Like, is there a logical reason why? And also, that the new piece of music, was that written by John Williams? Yes. So okay. for the special editions, uh, they wanted to include this new ending, which included celebrations from all around the, the galaxy. And it was also for to start showing the expanded universe because two years later, he's releasing the Phantom Menace. So since it's a, a longer uh, sequence, uh, John Williams was tasked to write a new ending piece, which was called Victory Celebration. So it's a brand new theme. It still has the same uh, sort of rhythm and pace that the original Ewok celebration had, but it's a it's on a, a grander scale. And um, so that was the whole point of that. He just had to write new music for this brand new sequence. And what they felt was that the, the Yub Nub stuff was, it's, it just, it kind of stays within that group of rebels who are on Endor, which I actually like. I mean, honestly, I think the Death Star exploding and the Emperor dying, I mean, that doesn't mean it's the end of the the Empire. I mean, there must be <laughs> more spaceships and things like that all around the universe. I mean, so, I mean, I, I, I think the celebration for me um, should have stayed with Luke and Han and Leia, and that's where the, the little Ewok piece seems just a little bit more personal. Um, so yeah, the whole point of victory celebration, uh, which is special edition on is just to cover all the new CGI. Okay. I've, I figured that's what it was. I just, you know, like to hear it from somebody smarter than me. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I don't hate it. No, I don't, I don't, you know, again, it's what I grew up. So, I mean, if my son watches return of the Jedi 10 times, and this is the version that he hears. This will be the normal for him. And then right. when I play him the uh, when I play Ewok Celebration, it will sound different to him. It'll sound weird, and he'll say, "I don't, I don't understand why they're doing that." And then he'll say, "Who was that old man?" You know, right. because because I did show him that. I showed him the original scene, and when the guy came up, I said, "Who is that?" He says, "Well, that's Anakin, obviously." And I said, "Yeah," and he goes, "But I wouldn't have known that." Other than he's the only other person it could be. And I said, exactly. And my son just kind of looks at me and I said, I said, this is where I think George Lucas thinks we're dumb. Yes. And he says, and my son's like, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I've, you know, I've, I've hurt his friend's feelings, right? And he's like, well, I think that's unfair. And I said, no. I said, I th- honestly think that because we, we have to put Hayden Christensen in there. Otherwise, you won't know who... Anakin Skywalker is if we leave the other guy. I honestly think it's because George Lucas thinks that we're dumb as fans. And then but, I get I mean, on a, I have another soapbox about how directors think we're stupid. And, it, and, again, and they, they do. Yes, producers yeah. and directors definitely do think that we're stupid. We've had this, like, it was from 83 till 97. That's That was the norm. We knew what it was. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's the redemption of Anakin. 
I mean, and now I think the whole point of having young Anakin was that, oh, that's when he was a Jedi. And when he turned to the dark side, I mean, you don't come back as a, as who you were when you were, you know, part of the dark side, but Vader, Anakin was, was redeemed at the end of Jedi. So he can come back as an older version of himself, but it made sense. I mean, I knew it. I was, I was seven or eight when I saw Jedi, I knew who the hell it was. So, um, what just change for change sake. It's, 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 it's a cliche. It's ridiculous for Star Wars. It just is. They're just going to keep on changing this thing until it's unrecognizable. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is, it is weird. It's a weird moment because then, because then the argument's like, well, then why isn't, why isn't it like you and McGregor, you know, but anyway. Right. Yeah. I know. But I, it, it's fine. It's it, it's again. My son will watch it and he'll enjoy. It. And Star Wars is for kids anyway. Mm. So ultimately, we haven't answered our own the question I posed twenty five minutes ago before I went down the, the tangent, I, the rabbit, the soapbox. I said I didn't want to get on. Um, so going back and re listening to this. So there was something that I did not realize until today. And again, you can roll your eyes uh, for those who are listening because of of Eric and his show. And go, how could you not know this and call yourself a, an audiophile? But <laughs> I love in this movie, Return of the Jedi, um, I love that we have three, the, the third act, which is essentially the last half of the movie, but it's the third act of the movie, is the battle. But it's three locations. We're on, on indoor, space battle, and in the Death Star. We have three different types of conflicts happening. Um, and therefore, we have to have three different types of music happening. And while listening to the soundtrack this time, I did not realize that the music that he wrote for the scenes on the Death Star, that's its own thing. The, the, the battle between Vader and Luke and the Emperor, that's all one track. And then the space battle is a track, and then the indoor is a track. And that when we go to different places we get the music for that spot. And I, for whatever reason, it just, in my brain as I was always watching it growing up, I just assumed that when he, when he, write, he writes the music for what, how the movie is edited, right? Here's the final edited version. Now he writes the thing. So here's this part, and then we stop, and then we get to this new part, and then we stop, and then we get mm-hmm. to this new part, and then we go back. But listening to it on, in the track form on the CD... My brain has to skip forward seven minutes because this is the part where the Emperor is goading Luke. Oh, now we got to the part where he and Vader are squaring off. But there's like ten minutes between that, you know? And then then here's the part where the Emperor says, Young young Skywalker, you will die. And then he starts, you know, strike hitting him up with the force lightning. And I'm like, Well, that's that's another ten minutes that's gone by. And then Vader picks him up and chucks him like a frisbee. And then uh, like that's another few minutes past so i never knew that i never thought about it that he wrote them as one track for those moments and uh so call me dumb but i i really enjoyed kind of figuring that out yeah i mean writing film music is an interesting um it's it's interesting way they create it it is also interesting the way they perform it i mean you might have a an eight minute sequence eight minute action cue and you might have only written a two-minute piece here, two-minute piece there, two-minute piece here, two-minute piece there. It's all going to play in eight minutes, but you've recorded four separate sections so that you're not absolutely destroying your orchestra <laughs> in one eight-minute cue and bashing those together for a single 
eight minute queue. All transitions are there and they're done on purpose. And John Williams does that all the time. Um, I think what is interesting with, with Jedi and even in the Phantom Menace is juggling three different scenes and, and making, uh, transitional music to go from, let's say Endor to, uh, the space battle. And so you'll hear four or five minutes of the, the forest battle. And once you get into a, a transition sequence, you're right. The music changes and it has to match the excitement that you're seeing on screen from a space battle. And so there's one great transitional cue where it just, um, it comes out of the Ewok music, which is, um, all very, um, kind of tribal and, and, and rhythmic and, and wild. And then once you get into the space battle with the explosions, he just rips at you with these, um, rapid fire trumpets as you, as you, uh, see the, the Falcon flying around. And he did that in, uh, Empire Strikes Back as well. And it just signifies that you are now in the space battle. And, and, and that is always, I always love the way that composers are able to transition from one set piece to another. And Williams had to do that. I mean, you look at some of the, the, the track times of Return of the Jedi and how much continuous music there is. I mean, you're going from the, the, the Endor battle to space to, you're right, to Luke and Vader. And there's a whole wide range of different tones and styles and sounds that you have to match. But most of the time, unless you're like James Horner was very famous for writing massive like Q sometimes lasting 16, 17 minutes long. And he performed that from note one to the last note in one recording and where, you know, John Williams will take, you know, a 10 minute sequence. And as I said, we'll, we'll chop it up, but then bash them all together. And so, but he still has to somehow flow. His music has to flow with the dramatic, um, with the storytelling, the arc. And so you just, once you get to the point where you're just, if it doesn't seem like it's, um, it, sometimes some, some of the music can seem out of place. And this is the, the issue that's with the Phantom Menace because there's so many crazy edits and so many pieces of music that isn't wor- that isn't actually written for that scene. And that's a whole other thing. If you ever want to talk about this, the prequel trilogy, you want to hear me get in the soapbox? I can do that. <laughs> um, and it doesn't really happen here in, in the original trilogy because, you know, these films were locked pretty much when Williams got the music. So, um, but yeah, it's film scoring is such an interesting process and, um, it's, uh, it's an incredible skill. It's an incredible gift. And these guys are, I mean, they're writing music right down to the last, you know, one, one hundredth of a second. I mean, you should see the cue sheets that they get. And, and for empire, you know, they would watch the, the movie, and, and Williams would know like at one minute, 17 seconds and two milliseconds that this is where the cut is, or that's where this is happening. And he's able to mathematically figure out where his music has to go and what has to be written from this point to that point. So he knows he has four seconds to fill. So he'll write four seconds of music to get to that point. And it's all written on paper. It's it's marvelous to see that. If you ever get a chance, there's a great documentary on the Empire Strikes Back that was filmed at the time that they were making the Empire Strikes Back. And there's a whole bunch of great Williams um, behind the scenes footage. And he's writing the Minot Cave music 
um, and you can see him actually writing it and, and, and coming up with it on the piano. He's talking to his music editor and it's, you can see them recording that same cue then on the scoring stage. It's, oh, I, I love it. I love everything. I love the whole process of film scoring. It's just great to see it go from, you know, from an idea in his head to the piano, to the orchestra. It's fantastic. So to finally answer the question, um, <laughs> I have two. I have two kind of favorite moments when I went back and re-listened to it today. One, I love the forest battle. I think the forest battle as a standalone piece of music is probably my favorite of this movie. Uh, I I just love the energy. Um, you know, notwithstanding when Chewie does the Tarzan roar, but. But there's just something really fun about this. And the time signature just changes constantly. And it's like the music is is symbolic of the battle because it's a battle. It's crazy. There's all kinds of stuff. It's really just really fun and interesting. And there's also a section that has... Um, um, there's, there's a section that has uh, like bells like you know mm-hmm. like um like sleigh bells mm-hmm. and i'm like you know if you didn't know any better this would sound like a christmas movie which is kind of funny but the other part that i loved that i never noticed and maybe because it didn't make a lot of the movie i don't know i don't remember hearing it is the tuba solo from java for java's theme and I, I heard this and I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, so my brain is spinning, right? Because I'm listening to it going, is that a tuba or is that a euphonium? So I'm listening to it really carefully. Again, this is a moment where I stopped working. I just sat down. I was listening with my headphones on. And then I had to go find it. I had to go onto YouTube and find Google, Jabba's Palace, John Williams, tuba. And it is a tuba solo. Um, and there's a great video of the of the guy playing the tuba, but it's also he's not playing a full tuba. He's playing what we call a quarter tuba. So it's like the a tuba light, like whatever the difference between a euphonium and a tuba is. This is that instrument. So it's um, uh, some of them will have a smaller mouthpiece. It's the same shank that goes into the pipe, uh, that large bore, but the mouthpiece can be a little bit smaller, so that you can get a little bit of that better tonguing. Because there's a lot of really intricate, you know, notes and tonguing happening on that Jabba piece, and but the reason why it made me realize because I was when I obviously when I physically saw the tuba, I'm like, oh, that's a smaller tuba, but he can't really hit a lot of low notes. Uh, it's it's all kind of in the medium register. It uh, part of me is sitting there thinking he should have just written it for euphonium, but you know, you didn't you didn't put euphonium in you know orchestras very often i know zimmer did a couple times but for the most part you don't um and i know holtz did obviously very famously but um but those are the two that i really cued in on and not just because i really wanted to see if i can get my hands on the sheet music for that tuba solo and try to play it myself oh man i mean he hits all the ranges from that instrument right there's some absolutely ridiculously high notes that i don't know how the guy managed to hit but you're right there's this low rumble of the tuba just right near the end right he does this little yeah. i think there's a little solo piece um mm-hmm. or um uh, uh, an improvised portion right near the end and he just starts hitting these rumbly low notes so i mean he's gone from like the the super high the maximum high that you can get to a to for a tuba and i'm sure the guy's mouth was bleeding by the time he was done all the way to this <laughs> just 
guttural, low bassy, so, you know, rumble of the instrument. And it's fantastic. And what's crazy, though, is that that concert piece is not even on the 83 soundtrack. You can't find yeah. it. And by the way, I think they recorded the concert suite for the Return of the Jedi sessions, but that version of the concert theme has never been released. So we don't have the original recording of the Jabba concert suite as recorded during the Jedi sessions. It's never been released on any other album. And the only way you can get it is, uh, on re-recordings. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great theme. I think and it's cliche, but it fits and it has this Middle oh, Eastern yeah. feel to it as well. And I really like that. The, the, the percussion that is written, uh, some of those string lines as well seem very uh, Middle Eastern to me. Yeah, here's just a little taste of it. So, I mean, it's it's just this this fun little thing. Let's see if I can get towards the end here. Some of the pedal tones he's in. Pedal tone is the word you're looking for in those that low stuff. Okay. Um, There you go. There's great there's stuff. Kind of some, of the, some of the in there. Yeah, those are some of those low. If I had perfect pitch, I could tell you what the note was. If my <laughs> or if our old coast uh, Cornelius was on the show, he could tell you what it is. My dad could tell you what it is. Uh, he has that. But um, yeah, it's just fun. It's just a lot of fun, and it 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 makes you kind of remember that John Williams loves uh, all of the brass. And one of my favorite. A uh, little fun piece that he did. Uh, he did, you know, the March 1942. He did the movie for 1942. and um, 41. <clears throat> thank you, 41. Sorry. Because he, uh, there is a 1942. He did the, um, I got to march in, in college, a John Williams piece of music. Everyone that was in uh, in a marching band probably marched some kind of John Williams suite. But we opened with 1941. Um, our, our middle or middle section was um, the Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. And then we closed with a, a Cadillac in the Sky from oh, Empire of the nice. Sun, which transitioned into Land Race from uh, Far and Away. Wow. And it was so amazing to go from this, that da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, you, you, it builds, it builds, and then it just goes into da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, da-da-dum for the Land Race. And it's just such energy. And it's, uh, I, 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 five years of marching band, I remember two shows. The 9-11 show and the John Williams show. I don't remember any of the other ones. <laughs> um, so uh, that's fine. What was your, do you have one for return? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's one partial section, and I, I mentioned it. It was the the victory fanfare oh, yeah, that okay. it plays at the end of the sail barge battle. And um, I, again, it's one of those one-off melodies that you never hear again. I think, and I could be wrong, I'm not a musicologist, so, but I think there is a variation of that theme when the Death Star blows up. There's another very uh, fanfaric yeah. uh, uh, victory piece at the end there. But this is just, this melody is something that any other composer would gladly use as the main theme for their film. And here John yeah. Williams is, you know, just one-off. I'm just going to play this at the end as a way, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not any of the recognizable themes. It's just something brand new. And I think it's absolutely glorious. Um, but the other cue, 
And I think the reason I like it so much, and again, earlier on in the program, I mentioned that I used to listen to those 24-page read-along books. And the Return of the Jedi uh, book, for all the action sequences um, while the narrator was was reading, they would play the Into the Trap cue. And it's this great uh, piece of... Um, I guess prelude music to the star, uh, to the Death Star battle as all the spaceships are, are, you know, flying by the medical frigate and, um, and, and just calling in their, their call signs. And, and just at the last second, Lando realizes that the, the shield is, is still up and they, they dart away from the invisible shield and then they finally get into the battle. What I always thought was really cool about this cue is that for that whole setup, uh, John Williams is utilizing uh, a variation of Darth Vader's or the Imperial March's B theme. So not that big, you know, statement that we hear of Vader's theme. It's that secondary theme, that lighter, lighter kind of um, fluttery flute music that you hear. And so Williams utilizes that. He utilizes it in the opening titles as well, but it's during the Into the Trap sequence that we finally get to hear him play around with that portion of the Imperial March for this great kind of upbeat, getting ready for battle piece of music. Uh, yeah, the melody is in the cellos, which is just great. Here it is, you get the little bit of the theme. And this is where Lando is realizing something ain't right. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a good piece. It's so good. It's so good. And um, it gets uh, chopped up a bit in the movie. So I think there's, again, I think in the deleted scenes, you can see there's other um, pilots that are calling out their call uh, sure. numbers. And so the piece, unfortunately, gets a little, you know, nipped and tucked. But uh, besides that, it's still fantastic. And that, that was the scene for, what was it called again? It's called Into the Trap. It, it, it's called the... Uh, Oh, I didn't have my volume up. Gosh dang it, I didn't have it queued up. Oh, I failed. It's a trap. Okay, there we go. Gosh dang it. Classic. Had the joke pulled up, and I just didn't execute. Okay, all right. Well, on that note, I think that's a good place to end. Me failing to execute a joke. Um, If you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I do that all the time. And here's the annoying thing. I actually had it in my main queue. So I now have, I have a list of about, I don't know, 60 songs that I keep at the, at the handy. Uh, so that if I need to have, at any point, I can just click on. That's gross. You know, so I can hear Steve Rogers say that that's gross, right? Um, so right above the, uh, the water boy noise, <laughs> where he gets hit in the head, I wow. now have. Yeah, I got nice. that. Yeah. Oh, I got a bunch of these, man. It's it's insane. Uh, yeah. I I I have a lot of fun with my soundboard. Though we've made the joke many times that I could almost have a podcast with how many sound clips I have. I could just. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, just back and forth with just. Um. You know. Why not? Well, okay. I don't. I don't have a reason, but sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um. <laughs> last one I'm gonna play is this one. That's a noise that Kevin Costner made in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. All right. Where? Yeah, when remember when he he meets the priest 
he he goes up and the the priest goes, "Oh, you the man." There was a boy I knew, a man stands before me, whatever. And then that's when he cuts Alan Rickman on the side yeah. of the face. But he gooses him. That's the noise that Kevin Costner makes. Really? <laughs> I just, I just so ruined odd. your night. <laughs> that is so weird. Yep. <laughs> that's Kevin Costner. Oh, my gosh. Okay. There you go. Um, all right. Eric, this has been a blast. I had no idea we were going to fill two hours of this show, but good gracious, here we are. Um, yeah. I was honestly losing sleep last night if we were going to make it an hour. So, oh, really? Yeah, because it's, 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 we're talking about one that's uh, it's music, so it's hard to really express your emotions about music without playing some of it, which I was a little sure. apprehensive, but you know, I did it, and if I get, whatever. Um, but also, again, it's, it's Star Wars, right? Like... I I put out three episodes on the on the the Star Wars, and I already got a little bit of a pushback on Twitter. You know, it's like it's Star Wars, right? Um, that's it's the most like covered thing on the planet besides politics. You know, so yeah, I mean, um, it's tough to talk about. Star- I think it's honestly tough to talk about Star Wars and not talk about the music. You have to. It's it's they're yeah. they're they're just all it's all one and the same. It it, it all works together, and I think. Uh, I mean, we could. I could honestly go on for another two hours if we had to, and I could just talk forever about these series of, of films and scores. Because honestly, I mean, if you didn't think you can get to two hours or even to one hour, I mean, we we didn't really get into a whole lot of the stuff that I could could have got into. So there's yeah. so much more here that we could talk about. But I think that I think that the stuff that we did talk about was actually quite interesting. Yeah, because um, you were hinting some of those things that you had, a lot of the trivia, a lot of the, the, the rhyme and reason, and and maybe one day we'll have that episode. Maybe we'll have a bonus part two of this. I don't know. Um, but I also know that sometimes people just kind of want to hear how we feel about things. Yeah. And um, I, think that's, I think that's accurate. Of course, I might get a message and say, no, we wanted to hear the other stuff. And then in which case, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 like I said, if if you want to know how we are feeling about things, or especially myself, and you really want to hear, I mean, if you love rants, if you love rants, then bring me on for 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 us talking about the prequel music, and it will well, get ugly. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, here's here's a deal I'm going to make with you at two hours and five minutes of the podcast <laughs> is that we've already done our review of the origin of the the episodes one, two, and three. Um, but it does sound like a cool thing to, to, to revisit maybe next May when we get around to May the 4th again. And I think I teased last week that I'm going to force the guys to watch the two Ewok movies. Oh, um, wow. That are, cause those are on Disney plus. So that, that sounds like a lot of fun to, <laughs> to do to them, to Andrew and fun. Sam. See the thing is, is that I watched them as a kid. So to me, I loved them as a kid. I haven't watched them. I'm I'm about to turn forty. I haven't watched them in thirty years. Yeah. So I have no idea if they hold up. They probably don't. But nine year old no. me loved the hell out of those okay. things. So, um, so Eric, please tell people that listen to my show how they can find more of you because you've done like a big deep dive on Star Wars on your show. And I would really suggest people uh, go listen to that. 
Yeah, you know it's funny. I I yeah, I've done I've done a bunch of Star Wars shows. Um you know a lot of it's just on you know the music itself so if you want to find like different recordings of star wars music and whatnot um yeah i've gone into some detail there um but i mean this is really the first time that i've gone into a deep dive on star wars anywhere so most of the time i'm called in to do star trek which is bizarre because i'm not really a trekkie i like star trek but i mean it's like i've I seem to be, you know, someone who could talk about Star Trek quite a lot and Indiana Jones. I, I could talk about Indiana Jones all night. But if you want to hear more of my stuff, then cinematicsound.net is where you want to go. Um, and if you want to talk to me, um, I'm on Twitter, Sound Radio, or on Facebook at Cinematic Sound. And uh, yeah, those are places you can you can find me and, and listen to the show. And uh, yeah, I hope you find something that 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 you like. Again, the Waterworld episode is what hooked me. So, um, yeah, those Soundtrack Alley episodes are are becoming my favorites, and uh, there's a lot of great shows coming. Like we're doing well. I wasn't on Stargate, but Stargate's coming up. And uh, but yeah, if if anybody out there wants to hear us talk about a particular movie and score, then we'd love to hear from you because we'll we'll take ideas from from anybody. Anybody, but we've done Crystal Skull, Batman Returns, Jurassic Park, Aliens. Um, and we're doing Alien 3 coming up. So those are fun. I really love uh, just diving into uh, to a film score and talking about it forever. Absolutely. Um, my eternal thanks to you, Eric, for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I'm so glad that you agreed uh, that I basically browbeat you into doing this. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing, of course. I, uh, I bribed him uh, with... Yeah. Um, I don't know what I could say here. What what joke would work? Um, insert generic Canadian stereotype thing. That's oh, what wow. I bribed you with. Oh wow! Uh, uh, I wouldn't know. What what? I don't even know what the Canadian version of that is. Well, for us, it, I would just you know, dumb American would say I I I I, I uh, either I bribed you with the Tim Hortons uh, gift card mm. or or just a, a jug of maple syrup or. Um, you know, hockey tickets or something. I don't know. We are Cheap Seat Reviews. Cheapseatreviews.libsyn.com is our website. Uh, there you can find links to all of our social media. Uh, and the past 230, sorry, 372 episodes, including the last three that we just did on Star Wars. Uh, I am so glad that we had a listener request us to do the Star Wars. I was nervous about them, but they've been a lot of fun. And there's been a lot of really good conversations uh, specific with uh, Randy from Soundtrack Alley and last week when we had Lady Wan on from Screen Run. Um, so uh, on behalf of Eric, this is Sean saying thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next week for what will be a really fun topic. Uh, next week we start our not Christmas Christmas movie uh, theme month. Yeah, very fun stuff. See you next week. This is Cheap Seat Reviews.